Good morning, High Point. Today's scripture passages come from two places, both in the Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 126, found on page 841 in the Pew Bible and 912. From Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you be not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Then jumping to verse 30. I will praise God's name in song and, and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who see God, may your hearts live The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. And then on page 912, Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks. Morning. My name is Bob Grauman, and um, I'm your preacher this morning. Uh, You can tell I'm not the regular preacher because I actually keep my keys in my pocket, as opposed to, you know, having a, that's a little joke there. Um, Anyway, it's a real joy and privilege to be here. Um, I'm actually a staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship which is a uh, movement of Christian ministry among students, university students here in America and throughout the world. Um, 
I have been a missionary from this church, supported by this church, by your prayers and finances for 27 years, since 1990. Um, and so it's a great privilege uh, to be able to share with you um, that you prayed for us, you were with us, behind us in prayer and support uh, when I was a staff here and when we moved to Kiev, Ukraine, and then came back here. Now I'm a national um, missionary through InterVarsity. Usually, um, when they ask me to preach, it's at a happy time of year, usually Christmas. Uh, I give the pastor a week off and, and preach during Advent or Christmas or Mission Sunday. <clears throat> but this is a little different because we're doing this series through the Psalms called Feel Better. And I love that uh, phrase because it has a couple of meanings. It doesn't just mean feel better. I think what the pastor had in mind is a series to help us to feel better in the sense of our feelings being more biblically accurate and acknowledging and dealing with real feelings that we have, not just blowing them off or over-spiritualizing them, but dealing with the real deep feelings that we have. And this morning, it's kind of an oppressive uh, topic. It's the topic of oppression. It's when I feel oppressed. And I'm basically gonna be going through Psalm 69, and I like that the house lights are on. So um, please uh, follow along. There's a nice Bible in your pew, and uh, they had the page that it was on, or just turn the middle of the Bible, and there's the Psalms um, to Psalm 69. So our topic today is oppression, and it, it's heavy. It's, this is gonna be heavy. Um, not my usual happy sermon because I'm gonna start here. Uh, if you are 25 years old or older, I'm sure you can tell me exactly where you were on this date and what you were feeling on September 11, 2001. I was living here in Madison, driving to the dentist office at eight o'clock in the morning, which is nine o'clock in New York, listening to the sports call-in show like I usually do. And at eight o'clock, the guy, the sports call-in guy said, we're gonna have to switch to our studio's new studio in New York because a plane has hit the World Trade Center. And I thought, pictured in my mind, a little prop, little propeller plane that kind of got lost in the fog and hit the Trade Center and fell down. I was, oh, that poor pilot. So I went to my dentist appointment and I got out, turned on the radio, just when they were saying, and the South Tower has collapsed. I was like, impossible. Couldn't be, that couldn't be, that tower couldn't collapse. Then I got home and watched it on the television and thought of all those people in that tower. And uh, it's devastating. I'm sure you felt the same. It's devastating. I'm from New York, born and raised in New York City and New Jersey, across the river. I went to those buildings all the time. Took our friends when they would come up to the top to the observation tower. And uh, yeah, I have friends in New Jersey and New York that are still traumatized. Still traumatized by that. Just two weeks ago, I have a supporting church as a missionary, a church that supports me in New Jersey. And um, so I preached in the church. I got there a day early and went to the, see the memorial in, uh, in lower Manhattan. And I said to the pastor, you know, yesterday I went to see the memorial and his pastor from New Jersey. And he said, I, I still can't go. He said, I've never been to the memorial. It, it's too painful. He said, I'm still traumatized 17 years later, still traumatized. So we know how we feel when this national catastrophe happens, the feeling of oppression and despair. So let me take you back 2,500 years to uh, 587 BC, 
when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem and uh, tore down the wall and burned down the temple. Now you remember, uh, the nation of Israel was one nation. They had a civil war. They divided uh, into two countries, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. 150 years before this, the northern kingdom was invaded. The people carried off to Assyria. And the people in the southern kingdom said, well, that'll never happen to us. We have the temple, the temple, sacred temple. That's where God lives. That's our, that's our temple. And even though we can sin and all that, but uh, we're safe until the Babylonians invaded, burned down the temple. Can you imagine? I mean, two buildings that mostly were, mainly were the financial center of the U.S. collapsed, and it was horrendous. Imagine their sacred place invaded by pagan armies and burnt down with all the Torahs and all the, the scriptures in it. That's oppression. And actually in America, uh, on September 11, the week after September 11, we kind of got an opportunity to process and think because if you remember that week, all the TV stations, the entertainment stations went off the air. And there was just a, a scroll on the television saying, our station has gone off the air for a week. Um, we want you to just not be entertained. We just want you to sit with your family and think about these things. Well, those people didn't get a chance to process. They were immediately taken captive to Babylon. So not only was their city invaded, their friends and family killed their temple burnt to the ground. They couldn't even stay home. They were taken as captives to a foreign country. That's oppression. And so um, I'm going to come back to this event at the end of my sermon. But for now, I'm going to take us through Psalm 69, because I think David, the author, uh, really shows what it feels like to be oppressed and all the different reasons why we can feel oppression. So here's the first four verses uh, where David just cries out to God, Save me, O God, for the waters have come to my neck. I sink in the miry depths. There's no foothold. I've come to the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail, looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. That's really the cry of an oppressed person. And David goes through in the psalm all the reasons why we can feel oppressed. And he starts with the outside ones, uh, like um, politically, from one's own government. Now, sometimes we sense that here on certain occasions, but I've had the privilege of traveling for my uh, years in ministry traveling to countries where there's literal oppression against believers in Jesus. And I talk to people there and it's, yeah, it's a daily sense of being oppressed by your own government. And um, here's one example. Um, there's, a, there's a group called Forum 18 in Norway, a group of scholars and researchers who research um, oppression or persecution, mostly in Eurasia. And they're not sensationalists. They don't exaggerate. They're very factual, research-oriented. And this is their report from a few days ago. On, Eastern Sunday, on Easter Sunday, nine members of a small congregation New Life Pentecostal Church 
in a village in a Central Asian country were meeting to worship in a private apartment when it was raided. Five police officers, among them a special anti-extremism police officer, raided the service. Without presenting any warrant, the officers began to film everything and search the flat. The senior local police officer ordered the church members to go to the police station to give statements, but they refused, demanding for the reason to know the reason for this. He told them that they were conducting unregistered religious activity. A few days later, under pressure, the church members did go to the police station where they were held for six hours and interrogated. Before they were allowed to leave, they were given statements of, of confession to sign, where, as well as confessing to unregistered religious activities, they had to confess to storing and using drugs, which, of course, they did not. Some of the elderly church members couldn't read, so they signed the record without reading it. When one church member noticed the reference to narcotics, the rest refused to sign, according to several uh, records that's seen by uh, Forum 18. Officers then threatened to imprison them. One was a 73-year-old woman who suffered a heart attack. Another was a 15-year-old girl who they let go, but the police captain later came to their home and pressured the girl never to attend church services again. In a heartfelt three-page handwritten letter seen by Forum 18, the 73-year-old woman, after she was recovering, called on people to reach out to the president, quote, so he would hear us and resolve this problem. She recounted the pressure from the police, quote, who have decided to use fear to separate us from God, something they can never achieve. They cannot ban me from my Christian faith. This did not happen 200 years ago. This was a few weeks ago. And this is the experience, I would say, of at least 50% or more Christians in the world. This is Sunday morning when most of our fellow believers around the world are meeting to worship. They're afraid of the knock on the door. I've been there. I felt that fear with them. That's the experience of most Christians in the world today. This feeling of oppression, even from their own leaders, their own national and local government. Now, people know that I travel <clears throat> in these countries and they ask me, do I have stories? Uh, well, because you folks prayed, um, I'm not usually oppressed. But um, just a couple of months ago, I was in a, the, the big country in Eurasia that's both in, half of it's in Europe, the other half is in Eurasia, and I can't mention the name, because um, this is being taped. But I was there to be the speaker at a student conference. Yes, we do have a student ministry in that country, and it's led by staff from that country. It is not registered, so it's kind of underground. And so uh, they signed up, the student leaders signed up to use this camp. And they signed with a woman who said she was the director of the camp. And we got to the camp, and the woman said, well, I'm not really director, I lied. Um, and she introduced us to the guy who was the director. And he was a very angry man. And he said, this is a student meeting? He said, I just met with the local secret police and they told me, don't ever have student meetings come to your camp because everybody knows that in this country when students meet, it's to plot a revolution against our president. So surely these students are terrorists. And then he looked at me and he said, who's he? And they said, oh, you know, he's a friend 
who's kind of coming through, so we asked him to, you know, say a few words to us. And uh, he said, uh, what country is he from? And they said, well, he's not from around here. <laughs> and uh, so finally they said, well, he's from America. And the guy's like, America? We all know that everybody who comes to this country from America is a spy. So I'm going to call the secret police. They're going to interrogate him, find out who he really is, who he's working with, what he's doing here. And I'll tell you the rest of that story later in the sermon. Um, but just as an example of daily life for most Christians, most of the world, that's what they experience, that oppression. So politically and for people of ethnic minority races, um, there's that real sense many times of you know, verse four, they hate me without reason. And this is, I know, this is so hard for us white people, majority people to understand. Um, something that will help if you watch the movie Hidden Figures. It's a really good movie, it's clean, um, and it really shows this, the slights the little indignities that these brilliant African-American mathematician women went through, where, where they, they, they wouldn't, the guys wouldn't let them touch the coffee pot. They made them a separate coffee pot that said colored. And uh, they could say, well, that's 1962. That's before the civil rights laws and all that stuff. Well, I can tell you, 40% um, of the staff of InterVarsity, we have 1,500 staff in America, 40% of them are not white. And I travel and I hear the stories. I hear the stories. Just last week, I was at a camp conference in Michigan and um, I was talking to a young lady who's uh, ethnically Asian. And she told me her story. She said, yeah, just last week, she said, I had to go to the student center, the student office, just to get a paper or something to do with my grades. It had nothing to do with my ethnicity. And I walked in, and the lady behind the desk said, oh, are you an international student? No, I'm an American. Yes, but where are you from? Saginaw, Michigan. No, but where are you from? Well, my parents have been here for generations. Well, where are they from? Korea, okay. There was no reason for that. I mean, when I walk into the DMV, they don't ask me where I'm from. They don't ask me if I'm a citizen or not. And I'm a first-generation American. My parents, both immigrants from Germany, I've been here much fewer generations than that woman student that I talked to whose family has been Americans for generations. I'm only first generation. They don't ask me where I'm from or if I'm a citizen. Folks of ethnic minority uh, who look ethnic minority get that all the time. I hear the stories. It's really true. It's hard to understand for us, I know, but it's true. And I do want to say that if you're here in this church and you're an ethnic minority, we will fail many times, but we want you to feel safe. We want you to feel loved here. We want you to feel part of everything, and we will fail. But we want this to be a real community of Jesus here. But the point is, many people of ethnic minority races and ethnicities just feel this just subtle oppression all the time. Then David goes on 
And he talks about his family. Verse 8, I'm a foreigner even in my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. And if you're a young person and you've come to Christ and your parents are not Christians, you probably have experienced some of this. Maybe they think like you're in a cult or you join this really weird group. Um, especially when you say, well, I'm going on a summer mission to Guatemala. I'm like, what? Or like some of our young people up here, here are the countries they're going to. Imagine when they told that to their parents, if their parents aren't Christians. Um, yeah, you can feel oppressed even from your own family. And those of us who are parents, when one of our children goes off, goes astray. Well, like David, his son rebelled against him. And that famous, uh, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Well, that feeling, when one of your kids goes off, it's indescribably horrible. It's indescribably painful. That is really oppression. So oppression can come from your own family. It did for David. Oppression can come from your friends. Verses 10 and 11 and actually 12 and 13. David says, when I weep and fast, I endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. In other words, no matter what I do, my friends think I'm stupid. My friends think I'm wacky off the wall. And maybe, you know, your, your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends, they think you're a little off. Um, I have a, a good friend who I worked with um, who became a neo-atheist. You know, he, he's serious. He reads the books by Dawkins and Hitchens and these guys. And he's really a bitter atheist bitter at God, who he doesn't believe in. Um, and I feel it in his relation to me. He, 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 he looks down on me. He thinks I'm stupid. He thinks the only reason I believe is because I was born in America, where you can see Billy Graham on television, and so on and so forth. Um, his, his whole view of me changed. Uh, and our friendship is, is it's hard. So even from your friends, you can feel oppression. And then David moves kind of from the outside oppression as he goes on in the psalm uh, to uh, economic struggles. You know, some of us, uh, some of you are just experiencing hard times economically. You feel like David, verse 2, I've come into the deep waters and the floods engulf me. Your finances are failing and you just feel sinking, sinking down under the flood of financial ruin or discouragement. Um, yeah, I don't want to go too far with this. And, but then, you, honestly, you start seeing some of the bills that are passed and by the Congress and so on, you're like, wow, what's gonna happen? What's gonna happen to me? What's gonna happen? And you feel this economic oppression. And then, like I said, David comes and makes it more personal. Sometimes you're oppressed just by physical problems. People in my family suffer from migraines and that is so oppressive. I mean, every two weeks, two days in a dark room with a towel on your head and you can't listen to anything, you can't read, you can't do anything. It's really oppressive, or cancer, or stroke, or, um, yeah, both my parents had strokes and affected their mind. Physical stuff can really be oppressive. And then there's emotional depression, because sometimes outward oppression causes you to be depressed. And you know that, that, that feeling in your gut, that dark darkness. And uh, David does a good job in the first four verses, actually, of describing that also. And then sometimes 
just life. Just life. As David describes in verses 1 to 4, just um, busyness, the hectic pace of life. Um, and you say, I'm just, I'm not disciplined enough. It's hard to get up. It's hard to be on time. It's hard to keep up with the bills. It's hard to keep up with the emails. What's wrong with me? What's wrong? It's just life. This past Sunday, a week ago, um, I missed an email. I just missed an email. I didn't read it carefully enough. And so people came here to the Micah Center for the church history class uh, from 1950 to the present, the history of the church, and there was no teacher because I missed an email. So, uh, by the way, if you were one of them, uh, I guarantee you stuff did happen since 1950 uh, in the church, and we're going to make up that class in a couple of weeks. But, you know, I missed an email, caused 15 people to miss their teacher. It's like, ah, life, life is just oppressive. You just make mistakes, and it's hard. Anybody feel like that? Um, and then the worst one, your own sin. It's interesting, the Hebrew uh, writers, they didn't think like we do here in the West, um, logically, point one, two, three, and four. The Hebrew writers thought in terms of what's called a chiasm, which is A, B, C, B, a, you see it in the Psalms. The first verse will be on a subject, the second verse, the third verse, the fourth verse will be the same subject as the second verse, the fifth verse will be the same as the first verse, A, B, C, B, A. The most important verse is C, and that's verse 5 in the Psalm. It's the center of the Psalm where David talks about his own sin. And again, um, we feel that way, don't we? It's almost like another force inside of us and it, that, that, that this sin is just so overwhelming sometimes. And Paul, the Apostle Paul says that in Romans 7. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, that's what I do. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. I do not do the good I want to do, the evil I don't want to do. This is what I keep on doing. Anybody feel that way? I do. A lot. It's like this force. And yes, uh, it's Satan in a sense, but it's also from within me. This oppression from my sin and my temptations and so on. So David does a great job. <laughs> verse after verse after verse after verse in Psalm 69, you have it right in front of you, of describing what it feels like to be oppressed. And all the different ways, from the outside, from the government, or from racism, or from whatever, the economy, and then from inside, from your physical problems, or your just dealing with life, or your own sin. Just, you can walk in this feeling of oppression constantly. So what does David say? What's, what do you do with this? Well, I want to make sure that this is not a cliche. He talks about prayer. I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, Lord. Answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Don't let the floodwaters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. You see what David does? 
He takes the things that oppress him and he prays them to God. Okay, this is not a shallow prayer. This is not a God bless everybody in the world or God bless me kind of prayer. This is an honest bringing before God of the things that oppress us. That is real prayer. And look at this. On the left are verses one to, yeah, on the left, are verses one to four. And then verse 15, 13 to 15 is his prayer. And notice in his prayer, he prays back to God everything he complains about in verse one to four. That he's in the miry depths, the waters have come over him, uh, and floods engulf him, people hate him, and so on and so forth. He takes those real things that I've been talking about, those real things, and he prays them to God. Because God's not afraid <laughs> to have you share your gut with him, or your complaint, or your feelings of oppression. There's a prophet in the Old Testament, Habakkuk, and he looked around his nation, his society, and he saw injustice. He saw the courts being corrupt. He saw the poor being oppressed. And he prays this to God in the first chapter. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? You don't listen. I cry to you violence, but you don't save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous. Justice is perverted. He brings that before God. And he says, look at this society. And he brings it before God. And God answers him. And it's the rest of the book of Habakkuk is a dialogue. Uh, Habakkuk is a dialogue between God and Habakkuk. And Habakkuk finally sees some important things. But it's the right thing to do. God wants that. God wants you to take your feelings, your real feelings, and bring them before him. Not just sweet rainbow prayers, but prayers that are honest before God. Um, let me tell you the rest of the story of when I was in that other country and that guy was going to call in the, um, the secret police, the internal police, the staff I was with um, that he was talking to. They said to him, um, let us go talk about this. And they went into another room and they checked the room for um, microphones and so on. And they were assured that we were alone. And this was a, 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 a young staff team, national staff. And actually, I had been with them two days before because they were sniping at each other, arguing. And so they asked me to come and share some stuff from the Bible about uh, how to get along with each other. So they, they got into this room. And they got on their knees. And they held hands. And they cried, and they wept, and they cried out to the Lord, Lord, we don't know what to do. We're responsible for 100 students that are going to come to this camp in another hour. And our, this whole government is against us. And these students are going to get interrogated. They're going to get kicked out of school. And they're going to discover our ministry here. Lord, we don't know what to do. They literally cried and cried out to him and just held on to each other. It was so beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful experiences I've had. And after they, they prayed, they got an idea. Aha, registration. In this country, in that country, um, when, you, when you move to a new city or go to a conference, you register with the police in that town. 
And they said, maybe this guy is afraid of having an American registered, you know, with the American passport at his camp. And so there's only one place in that country where you can go as you're a tourist and not have to register, and that is to a hotel. So they said, you know, there's a town down the street and it has a tourist hotel. So they took me down there and I registered at the hotel as a tourist and stayed there, got a room. And uh, then they would c come pick me up and take me to do my talks. But they went to him and said, you know, this American, he's not going to register at your camp. Now he's just a tourist. He's going to register in the hotel in the other city. He might come, we might have him come here every now and then, but he's not really going to be here overnight. And the guy completely changed. <laughs> he said, oh, okay. Then I don't need to call the, the, the local um, secret police. And he said, you know, I'm an old man. I live out here in the woods. It was way out in the forest. I live out here in the forest and no one comes to my camp. <laughs> I'm lonely. He said, it might be nice to have some young people at my camp. Sure, bring your, bring your students. God answered the prayer. He doesn't always answer it in that way. And by the way, when I go on one of these trips, you guys pray for me. And I know it. <laughs> I see it. I see the result. Please keep praying for me as I go to these, to these, to these closed countries. But in that case, the Lord specifically answered their prayers. He doesn't always answer them that dramatically, but when you're feeling oppressed, whether it's by outside things or internal things, and you come before the Lord in honest, deep prayer and really bring your complaints to Him, oh, it really does something to your soul. Because you get your eyes on God. You get to share your real feelings with the real Jesus who really cares. So that's the first thing that David did. The second thing he did was praise. Verse 30, uh, and by the way, there's verses in between that I didn't have um, Femi read. <laughs> David also kind of complains about his enemies, but he's being honest. And actually the early church took those verses and, and uh, applied them to Judas um, in the New Testament. But anyway, Starting in verse 30, David praises God. He praises God. I praise your name in a song. I glorify you with thanksgiving. Um, the poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. And again, this is not shallow, name it and claim it kind of faith. This is real faith in a real God who really cares. And again, as I go to these countries where there's persecution, I like to talk to the older, the older folks who've come through communist uh, persecution, old pastors who lived through the, the oppression. Every single one of them that I've ever talked to me, talked to, said, you know, I had a great life. Yeah, I was in jail for a while. And, yeah, they would come in and, and, you know, interrogate us. But I got to serve Jesus. I got to be pastor. Of, I got to care for these people, share the Bible with them, bring strength and encouragement to them. I have a great life. And they come out with joy in spite of all the persecution and all the oppression. So prayer, real prayer to the real Jesus. But then there's something else in this psalm. Did you see it? Did you see it? Um, one more thing. Look at verse 9. Zeal for your house consumes me. The insults who, of those who insult you fall on me. You know what that is? That's when Jesus was cleansing the temple. That's what they said about him. Verse 12, those who sit at the gate mock me, and I'm a, 
Song of the Drunkards. That's what was said Jesus, of Jesus on the cross. And then verse 20, 21. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. This psalm is a messianic psalm. This psalm is not about David's oppression. It's about Jesus. It's about the cross. Look at this. John 19, when Jesus was on the cross. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, lifted it to Jesus' lips. The scripture that would be fulfilled is this one. Psalm 69. This scripture points to the cross. To Jesus on the cross. So how does that help? Well, first of all, Jesus identifies with your oppression because he felt it. Consider Jesus. He was in a minority race. A minority race in the Roman Empire. He, his, his country was oppressed, occupied by the Roman army, by the Roman government. He lived every day under political and racial oppression. And, get this, he was a refugee. Yes, the Christmas story, we all know the Christmas story, the angels and the shepherds and the star. And you know that after Jesus was born, an angel came to Joseph and said, take your wife and son to Egypt. And Joseph did. And Jesus became a refugee. I could go on about that. That's enough said. Jesus was a refugee. And he experienced grief. He knew what it was like to weep at the graveside of a friend. He knew what it was like to have one of his 12 best friends turn against him. He knew what it was like to have his family turned against him early in the Gospel of Mark. His family did not believe in him. And they thought he was crazy. They tried to drag him out. And so Jesus experienced oppression. Everything you experience. Misunderstanding, family turning against him, friends turning against him, government injustice, everything he experienced. So he knows what you're going through. He feels what you're going through. But even more, he doesn't just feel it. He died for it. Because, you know, verse 5, David talks about his sin. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What happened on the cross? God looked at Jesus and saw our sin and judged it there. And then God looked at Jesus and put his righteousness on us. So in him, we're the righteousness of God. So on the cross, Jesus got rid of the thing that most oppresses us, guilt. And the result of our sin. So because of the cross, we are free. We're free to walk in love and in God's grace. And so let me go back to the uh, destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Um, in Psalm 126, we see that after 70 years of exile, God, by his grace, let the people come back. They came back. They came home. And Psalm 126, someone wrote that psalm as they were coming home. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. 
our tongues with songs of joy. In the last two verses, those who go out weeping, carrying their seed to sow, return with songs of joy, carrying their sheaves with them. That's in your coloring book, by the way. If you got the coloring book, that's the coloring page for this day. That's the phrase. Because this is a, a sermon about oppression, and oppression is real. It's real. It's not a false feeling. It's a real feeling, whether it's political or racial or from family members or friends or life or your sin. It's real what you feel. But so is God's forgiveness. That's real, too. So is God's love. So is the power of the Holy Spirit. So is prayer and praise. Because Jesus is real. He knows what you feel. He's felt your oppression. He knows it. He died for it. He took away sin and guilt from us. So yes, we're oppressed by a lot of things. But let's remember this last couple of verses here. Let's, as the kids say today, lean in. Let's lean in to his love. Let's lean in to his grace. Let's lean in to his forgiveness. Let's take those things that are oppressive, give them to God, and live in his grace and live in his love. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you did on the cross, that you felt our oppression. You know how we feel. And you took our sin and judgment on yourself. Thank you, Lord. In you, we can be free. Thank you that you care so much that you want us to share our feelings with you. You want us to share our complaints, our feelings of oppression, whatever it is, with you. And you give us your love, your grace, your power in return. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you, that you know our frame. You remember that we are dust. You remember our oppression, and you give us healing and joy and love. Thank you, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes on you. In Jesus' name, amen.